launch right into the question that's driving um, this, uh, this research that the talk is, uh, is based on. Um, and, and the question is as follows. Why did U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt insist during World War II that China should be one of the four great powers, the fourth, the, the fourth policeman, or one of the four policemen, as he called it, in the post-World War II? That's the question that puzzled me. Now, if you read um, even a few pages into any book on American policy in World War II, you'll quickly discover, I'm sure all of you know, that uh, the four policemen were at the center of what FDR envisioned uh, would be uh, the, the international order that would keep the peace after the war. Um, that's in any textbook. And the, the next sentence in all of those textbooks are the four policemen were the United States, the Soviet Union, Great Britain, and China. And then typically the authors or author or authors go on to other things. Uh, leaving, I think, an important question unanswered, and that is namely, why China? Uh, the literature is actually quite sparse. To the extent that the question is even entertained at all, it tends to be dismissed with one or another explanation that isn't uh, very well thought out. I'll, I'll list the most common ones uh, in a minute, and I'll tell you why I don't think they really hold much water. Um, but what, puzzled, what, what really struck me when I started looking into this is why the question hasn't even, not, not just been answered with, to my satisfaction, uh, but hasn't even been asked in any serious way uh, up until this point. Why is China one of these four great powers that FDR wants to place at the center of global power in the post-war world? So the first thing I'm going to try to do um, is convince you that this is really a puzzle. But this isn't self-evident, because most of the literature does treat it as self-evident, as something we don't really need to look very carefully into, because it's, it would have been obvious, or it should be obvious, why FDR did it. That's the first thing I'll try to give you, that it's not obvious, that it is something that we need to look into. Uh, the second is, uh, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go briefly over the common explanations, such as they are, and, and briefly note, uh, not, not to get too much into that, briefly note what I think um, the problems are, why they don't convince me. And then I'll, I'll present uh, a, a new framework for understanding uh, FDR's insistence, say persistent insistence, that China must be one of the four policemen, must be one of the four great powers um, to be at the center of this, of this global order. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll talk a bit uh, about well, why I think why I think this is a more far more convincing explanation than anything I've seen so far in the literature. Uh, I should um, uh, I, I should warn you, and I, I guess it's not on that slide, some some other slide. But the, you know, I, I, there isn't there isn't a, a, um, a smoking gun document that I found that FDR says um, this is why I want China to be at the you know the fourth policeman. One, two, three. Uh, this is more a story, the story that I'll tell you is more, more a story, I think, as, as most uh, interesting historical stories are, about connecting the dots, uh, about seeing uh, uh, policies, seeing the behavior of the, the decision maker, and trying to figure out what is the best explanation that accounts for everything that we see. And I won't be able to tell you everything that I see, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll focus on most, what I think are the most important dots in this story. I hope I'll convince you, at least, that if, if this is not uh, if I 
won't convince you that this is the only possible explanation, at least I hope I'll convince you this is a plausible explanation, the best one I've, I've seen so far. So first of all, why is it a puzzle? Well, first of all, it, it might be hard to remember from our perspective in 2013 when it seems obvious that China is a great world power, that in the 1940s, in 1941, the United States joins the war, China had not been treated as a world power, as a great power in international affairs for at least a century, for at least since the first opium war, which uh, I'm sure you know began in 1839. So we have here a century of uh, very literally uh, uh, treating China, the great powers treating China as, and this is how they, the term that was often used, a small nation. Small not in territory, small not in population size, but small in stature in the international hierarchy. I'll, I'll talk a bit more about, about that in a minute. Now, number two is that FDR uh, persisted in this pursuit uh, against very significant head headwinds. There were actually headwinds within his administration, but the ones I'll focus uh, on here are the headwinds from his other allies. Both Churchill and Stalin were vehemently opposed for different reasons to this idea of promoting China to great power ranks. And yet FDR, and I'll, I'll show you this in a minute, spent quite a bit of capital vis-a-vis -vis these two important allies in order to, to, to get them uh, to agree to this promotion. Number three is, and this is, might strike you as surprising, even with his Chinese ally, this particular um, idea that China should be one of the four policemen didn't go very far. There are lots of things that uh, FDR did during the war to keep uh, Chiang Kai-shek happy, um, but this particular idea was not something that Chiang was terribly interested in. Um, and so I think that if you're trying to explain this by FDR was doing this because he was trying to keep the Chinese happy, you just don't get very far. The evidence is just not there. And finally, uh, I've, I've discovered and I'm convinced that FDR, uh, FDR's pursuit of this idea was uh, uh, both, well, he pursued it both early and often. So this was not some kind of trial balloon that he floated to see what people will say. He, he was wont to do these kinds of things. It's not would not have been beyond him, but I'm convinced that this was not one of these one of these trial balloons, um, and this was not sort of some of the passing flight of fancy that he might have you know come up with at some point and then abandoned. This was something that comes up very early on, almost immediately after Pearl Harbor, and he consistently stays with this idea, uh, really to his death uh, in, in the spring of 1945. So all these things together, I think, make it. Where are some of the existing explanations that we find in literature? Some of them are actually, I mean, if you, you go through literature, it's not, most often you find these explanations not as saying, well, you know, it's a question why China was included, therefore let us tell you, you know, why we think that is. It's more of a kind of a sign. Uh, if you look at, you know, things like Kissinger's own diplomacy, he says, well, you know, there were these four policemen, these were the four policemen, China was there because FDR wanted to be nice to China. And also there's something about East Asian strategy. Uh, and then he goes on to half a sentence that he devotes to, to this question. Again, treating it as if you know, we all know why this, why this happens. But, but you know, if you sort of read between the lines, these are, these are you know, the four explanations that I'm going to have here are the ones that crop up most often. One is that FDR was ignorant and or sentimental about 
China, and this, this is what explains why he wanted it to be a policeman. Uh, and the ignorance argument takes, uh, takes two, two actually contradictory variations. One is that he thought that the nationalist government was strong and therefore would be a powerful ally to have in the post-war world. And the other is that he thought uh, that the national go nationalist government was so weak uh, that it was going to be a puppet, essentially an American puppet, functions as an American puppet in the post-war world. Uh, I think uh, none of this makes any sense. None of this dovetail, dovetails with what we know about, about uh, FDR's knowledge about China. He had uh, excellent information and, and a fairly, for someone who was not a China expert, a, a, a fairly significant understanding of, uh, of Chiang Kai-shek's personality, his, the nationalist regime's situation, the weakness of their domestic situation, the weakness uh, of their military uh, structure. Uh, there was, there, there's absolutely no evidence to show that FDR didn't understand what was going on in China. And in fact, he says, numerous times, and I'll show you a few quotes, but he says this numerous times, that he, that China is weak militarily, it's weak politically, and he expected to remain, he was hoping that it would at least be politically united in the post-war world, but he expected it to remain weak militarily and economically for quite some time after the war ends. There was no expectation here that China, so, I mean, we, we, there, there was, he, he was not, he did not think that China was actually a great power and therefore should be recognized as such. He was consciously making it into one with this uh, sentimentality idea, idea comes up a lot. Uh, I gave this, uh, this talk uh, at Harvard maybe two or three weeks ago, and one of the participants was a Boston lawyer who was a uh, descendant of the, uh, 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 the Delano side of, you know, of, the, of the FDR family tree, and, and he brought in a um, a, a kind of handwritten diary by some Del Delano ancestor who had been in China. A lot of many of the Delano ancestors, the important ones, were China traders in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, and FDR liked to mention that. Um, and, and he was waving around this, the, the, the lawyer was waving, at the, at the q &A, was waving around this diary and said, you know, FDR's great uncle um, was, uh, was this China trader and FDR grew up on his knee and he, you know, on stories about China trade and so on and so forth. And, and this is why he wanted China to be among the well, uh, FDR certainly uh, liked to kind of play on these on these family connections, um, but I, I'm absolutely convinced that this was not the motivation. Uh, he, he, it was an easy way for him to explain, you know, my Delano ancestors, and that sort of thing. But, but um, you know, when, when you look at when you look at the way he thinks about this behind closed doors, uh, the way he advocates for this behind closed doors, this is not a question of sentimentality. Strategic, uh, central strategic significance. And the second explanation that often comes up is the domestic opinion China lobby story. You know, there are lots of, uh, and, and this is, in some sense, it's an extension of this sentimentality story to, to the American public. And at large, you know, the American public was sentimental about China. They saw the United States as China's protector, um, kind of uh, patron client relationship that they imagined there being. There's a lot of Many effective China lobbyists, uh, uh, Henry Luce is often mentioned in this connection, uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek and her brother, T.B. Song, who was uh, uh, the foreign minister of the, uh, of the nationalist government. Uh, and, and all of that is true. There was a, a, a strong China lobby. Um, they were influential. Uh, but it's beside the point. Uh, uh, there might have been other things that FDR did to uh, make the China lobbyists happy, but this was not one of them. 
One, he started promoting this idea behind the scenes long before the China lobby started cranking up. Uh, two, he kept this idea largely secret for as long as he could. This was not a public relation uh, uh, ploy. Um, and and third, uh, FDR was ambivalent at best and actually quite dismissive of both Chiang Kai-shek and, no, dismissive is not the right word. He, he, he respected uh, the fact that they were uh, they were the, you know, the leaders of nationalist China, but, but he uh, didn't get along with either of them very well. He didn't like either of them very much. And I'm convinced that this was not about the Chiangs. That is, his insistence that China must be the fourth policeman was not about, you know, we need to have Chiang Kai-shek at the center of world order. It was about China as a concept, as a nation, as a country, and not about the particular political leadership after, after he meets their only meeting in, in Cairo of, uh, in 1943, uh, fall 1943, uh, uh, we have evidence that he, he says after he meets with Chiang Kai-shek, and Chiang Kai-shek drives him crazy with all sorts of all kinds of demands. Um, he says, you know, I, I wouldn't mind if this guy was perhaps removed in a coup or something. Some sort of thing that, that Kennedy later said about, uh, about CM. Um, so this was not about the third explanation that comes up is wartime concerns. According to this, FDR was afraid that either that China would sign a separate peace with Japan or that they would collapse uh, under the, uh, uh, you know, the morale will, will, uh, will collapse. Uh, he, he was concerned about those things. He was, I think he wasn't as concerned as some of the advocates of this explanation think, but he certainly was concerned about those things. But again, this is an irrelevant explanation because there is no connection between uh, making China a central component of the post-war order in bolstering uh, the morale of the Chinese uh, fighting force during the war. There are other things, again, that he did to do that, uh, uh, you know, his approval of Chenel's flying tigers and that sort of thing. I, I can certainly buy the explanation that that had something to do with his desire to bolster Chinese morale. But this, uh, and as I said before, Chiang himself was not particularly interested in this role. And when uh, FDR approached him, in, approached him in Cairo and said, you know, would you like, would China like to take a leading role um, in the occupation, the Allied occupation of Japan post-war, uh, Chiang demurs and he says, well, you know, we're not quite ready for that. We have enough problems within China. We don't want to be the occupiers of Japan. And the fourth explanation, and this is the one that I think has something to it, but it's, it's woefully incomplete, um, is that there was some kind of regional security balance that FDR imagined was necessary in East Asia and that China was going to be central for that. That's essentially the Kissinger explanation. Um, a lot of people to whom I mentioned this question say, well, of course, you know, he wanted, he wanted um, uh, China to balance out, well, they say either Japan or Russia or both um, in the post-war world. And I, I think there might be something into that, but I think in, in that, but I think there's actually, the evidence shows that there's actually far less than you would think. Uh, and there's several reasons for this. First of all, it's very clear, and again, as I said before, it's very clear that FDR expected China to remain militarily weak for a long time after the war. So if this was going to be a military balance in East Asia, it was a very long-term thing. It was not something that was going to be in place, in his view, in 1945 or 1950. Maybe in 1970, that was, that was going to be plausible. The other problem with this um, is that we tend to forget that inasmuch as FDR was worried about a major world power in East Asia. 
in the post-war period, he was far more worried about the British than he was about the Russians. Uh, FDR, and I, 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 I'm quite convinced of this, uh, saw the British Empire as a bigger impediment to the sort of world order that he, the US-led world order that he thought he wanted to construct after the war than, than the Soviet Union. Um, that, uh, to me, is pretty clear. We've, we've tended to forget that. I had a big argument over this, over this precise point with the taxi driver who brought me here today from, from Austin. He told me that history, and as soon as he heard it, I was in the story, he said, oh, history is my passion. And my father was in World War II. And, you know, he reads military history. And, and uh, I think that by the end of the ride, I managed to convince him that there was something about the British Empire that bothered, bothered FDR. But, a lot of the writing, actually, a lot of our understanding of FDR's thought processes um, as it comes through the literature comes from British authors. You know, the, if, if you look at even, even someone as, I think, really insightful as <coughs> Bob Dalek, uh, a lot of the stuff that he quotes, because that's what there is, is from Halifax and from, uh, and from Eden and from Churchill telling us what FDR thought, because FDR was not nice enough to tell us himself as historians. Uh, and, and of course, Churchill wrote much of this stuff, you know, the famous dictum. He wrote much of this stuff himself. But even other historians who are trying to get into FDR's head, they find that the British sources are the most available. Um, and so a lot of this stuff is actually not what FDR thought. It's what Halifax thought that FDR thought. It's what Eden thought that FDR thought. It's what Churchill thought that FDR thought. And so, and so this is, is actually, it's actually, I think, quite profound hostility. The British Empire gets, uh, gets significantly downplayed. All right, I've spoken enough. Now let me introduce to you what I think is 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 the uh, is the most useful frame uh, to think about this question, to try to answer this question. I start. Um, I think we have to, in order to put this in the right frame, we have to remember two things about the way, two aspects of FDR strategic thought. One of them is that um, FDR was a Wilsonian. And when I said there, 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 there are various different ways to define this, a, a part of his Wilsonianism was what I call historical Wilsonianism, meaning he wanted to learn lessons from Wilson's mistakes. And a lot of what, a lot of the way he conducts his strategy in World War II is based on, what, on, on trying to fix uh, what he thought Wilson got wrong. Um, but the other part of his Wilsonian, Wilsonianism was ideological, and at the core of this ideology was a view of global security based on an international organization of collective security that would deter aggression through a graduated process. First arbitration, then economic sanctions, and then finally, as a last resort, military intervention. Now, who would do this military intervention? That's what the four policemen are for. And he's very clear about this. He says, the four policemen will be the only powers who would have, who would have the right to use legitimate force in the international arena. All the other powers will be uh, disarmed. And when he first says this to Molotov, in the, when he first meets Molotov, in the, the, the Soviet uh, foreign minister in, in, in May of 1942, Molotov says, well, what about France? And FDR says, disarmed. Um, <clears throat> so he, he's, this, is, this, is, this is a fairly radical position. But he wants China to be one of those four countries that can has a legitimate right to use military force to deter aggression. That's, that's one piece. The 
Okay, the second piece that's important to remember, and not often remembered, is FDR's anti-colonialism. He, he, he uh, I think, was a, a passionate opponent of, of, of uh, territorial, what we would call territorial imperialism. Uh, and you, know, you, you can line up any number of quotes of what he had to say uh, about, particularly about uh, the, the, the record, of, the imperial record of the French, but also about the imperial record of the British. It's very clear that uh, he is that he is adamant that both that, that the European territorial empires must be dismantled uh, in the post war world. Uh, they could be dismantled gradually in, to some extent. Uh, yeah, for that, they set up uh, they set up the trusteeship system and so on and so forth. But the big pieces actually he wants to have dismantled very quickly. He's he wants to he wants for example he pushes Churchill on, on the question of Indian independence. And he wants him to promise Indians independence um, during the war, to be implemented immediately after. And of course, Churchill will, hears nothing of it, is not willing to hear it, and so the FDR begins to, to do this uh, with various uh, um, emissaries that he sends and, and so on. He doesn't give up the gold, and he doesn't, he, he doesn't push it directly with Churchill again. Uh, but it's clear that that's what he wants to happen. And, you know, the British Empire without India is, is not much, not much Sharp critic of European empires and consistent pressure on Britain. Now, both of these things are, you know, to FDR scholars, they're fairly well known. I think on the, on the second aspect, uh, Warren Kimball is especially strong. Um, but I've never seen anyone apply these uh, these two aspects of FDR's strategic worldview to the question of why China, which is the question for us today. Why is China? And I make the argument. China's role as a fourth policeman is best explained in light of the intersection of Wilsonianism and FDR's Wilsonianism and anti-colonialism. That is, he envisioned an order in which non-white peoples in general would no longer be part of the European empires. They would be sovereign, self-determining actors in world affairs. And if they were going to be sovereign, self-determining actors, they needed to be part of the system that he was constructing. And if they were going to be part of the system, they needed to be at least have a solid representation at the very top rung of that system, the fourth police. And so I actually make the argument that China, that, that, that FDR's pursuit of China as the fourth police is not, certainly not about Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek. It's not even about China per se, as big as China is. It is about the integration of non-white peoples into the post-war world order. And China is the biggest, the most, in his view, the most important, the most plausible candidate to represent this kind of integration. And therefore, he wants it to be. Now, the, the, there are all sorts of ways that we can talk about the legacies of this particular insistence. But the most obvious legacy is that FDR's insistence on China's inclusion as a fourth policeman uh, is what gets it is the single thing that gets China into uh, 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 the permanent memberships of the, the permanent membership of the Security Council of the United Nations, uh, United Nations Security Council, when it gets set up in 1944-45. And those of you who've, who followed recent, you know, recent decades, any of the efforts to uh, reform or expand the permanent memberships of the, of the, the permanent membership of the United Security Council will know, uh, had China not gotten in at that stage. 1944-45, it 
probably will not be in there today. They've tried to add India, they've tried to add Germany. It's, it's basically impossible to do. Uh, they failed. Um, and so the reason China is on the Security Council today, the reason that the Chinese have a voice in this top rung of global governance is because of FDR's insistence that, there must, insistence that they must be among the foremost. All right. <clears throat> and as I said, I'm not going to present a smoking gun, but I am going to show you some dots which I think uh, are most convincingly connected with this, uh, with this explanation. First of all, I want to I just start by showing you, uh, by reminding you, I'm sure all of you know this, but by reminding you that by even making the argument in 1941 that China was a great power, FDR was breaking with at least a century of, of uh, common understandings of how international affairs worked. Uh, China was, had not been treated as a, as a great power for at least 100 years. Uh, this is a, a, a seating chart that I found a long time ago, but I still really like it. It's, it's the seating chart of the plenary of the Paris Peace Conference that followed the First World War. And the nice thing, I mean, the plenary didn't really do anything significant in terms of negotiating the, the treaties that came out of, of the Paris Peace Conference. This is 1919. Um, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pictorial graphic representation of the international hierarchy. If any of you have ever been to a Chinese banquet, you know that people are, people's importance is imputed by where they sit. Right? And this is very explicit. So, you know, the same, same, the same, the same international diplomacy. So you have the chair, you know, Clemenceau here, the, 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 Chinese, the, sorry, the French uh, prime minister. Um, the most important people sit to the chair's right, as I'm sure you know. So that's the American delegation, President Wilson and the rest of them. Second most important to the chair's uh, left, this is Lloyd George and the British delegation. French, the French are here, the Japanese are here. There's also a number of seats, so it's number of seats and location. The big powers have five seats each. Uh, the, 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 big, the big five have five seats each. And other powers have fewer seats depending on their status. So where's China in this story? Well, China is right here. On the inside of the table, they have two seats, two seats, and they're seated between uh, what is it, Bolivia, on one side, and Ecuador on the other. So this was, this is, I think, a, a very clear representation of China's international status in 1919, and, and China appealed to the peace conference. Even in their own rhetoric, they said, "We, as a small nation, are asking, you know, this." They said, well, this war was fought for the rights of small nations like Belgium, so we are also a small nation, therefore we should be given at least as many rights as Belgium. So I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not going to talk too much about this, but, but I think even in the 1920s and, and 30s, the Washington Conference, and after the, the Japanese invasions and occupation in 31 and then 37, um, China is never treated as a great power. The, the war between, uh, until the United States joined the war, the, the war between Japan and China, or really the Japanese invasion of, of China, is never treated as a, as a war between two great powers. It's essentially treated in a way that's analogous to the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. That is to say, an invasion by a major power of a backward uh, 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 nation or state. That, you know, we are sentimental for, and we should, we should, we should talk a great deal about how we, how we should, it shouldn't be invaded just like Ethiopia was talked about, but we're not actually going to do anything about it. So FDR's insistence in, in this context is, is 
The next couple of dots, or a few dots I'm going to mention is, is that FDR's advocacy of China as the fourth policeman was uh, both central to his strategy and also persistent throughout the war, from 1941 to 45. Actually, right after Pearl Harbor, uh, the, the two uh, the Americans and the British in particular, but also negotiating with the Russians, um, begin to work on what becomes what uh, the, the Declaration of the United Nations. This is a sort of declaration of principles that is uh, devised in late December of 1941, that is literally a couple weeks after Pearl Harbor, and then released with great fanfare on the 1st of January 1942. Uh, and it's a, a very general declaration of principle. And it's, it, it, it's interesting, I, I looked at the negotiations over this, the discussions, internal discussions within the administration. FDR had some comments on the content, uh, his most important contribution or insistence was the inclusion of religious freedom as one of the principles uh, that the United Nations as war were, were fighting for, and he also coined the term the United Nations, which kind of got around the fact that Americans didn't like to be allied to anyone. Um, but it's interesting, when you look at that document right here, when you look at his, uh, in his memo to Secretary of State about the changes he wants in the draft of this declaration. Most of those comments are not on the in, not about the content of the declaration, but about the signatories. Who should be allowed to sign, who shouldn't be allowed to sign, and how to arrange the names, the order of names. And he says a couple of interesting things, three interesting things actually I want to mention. First he says, China and the USSR should be lifted from, the, from alphabetical order and put on top with the United States and Great Britain. So already he's creating this club of four that's separate from all the other 26 signatories. Separate, all the others were in alphabetical order. Then he says, number two, he says, I think it's really important to get the, to, to pressure the British to allow India to sign as a separate signature. And he succeeds in this. They allow it. And the third thing he says is the French should not be allowed to sign. So France is not there. And the more the more you learn about FDR, the more you appreciate the depth of his contempt for the French, I and mean, it's really quite but this is, but this is, uh, so this is how it looks pictorially. This is, you know, put out by the Office of War Information very soon afterwards, um, and this represents the flags of the signatories of the Declaration of the United Nations. They fight for freedom, of course, and you can see here the four great powers out, out of alphabetical order, and then you get to start alphabetical order, Australia, Belgium, and so on and so forth. India is there, right here, represented. France, so already weeks after Pearl Harbor, he says, you know, China has to be up there with the great powers. <clears throat> when he meets with Molotov, as he said, in May of 1942, Molotov, of course, arrives in, you know, famously arrives in in um, in, uh, in D.C. Uh, carrying in a suitcase a, a, a loaf of, of, of you know black Russian bread, a, a big Russian sausage, and a, and a over uh, for self-defense. He's a big opponent of the Second Amendment. Um, and and, and he, he wants to talk about the war. He wants to talk um, about the, the, the opening of a second front. That's what Stalin and Molotov are concerned about. But FDR starts a discussion by talking about the post-war order. 
And immediately he says to Molotov, you know, we're going to have this structure, the four policemen, four, four policemen are going to be in the center, they're going to preserve, they're going to have the right to preserve world peace, to use force in international affairs, all the others are not going to have that right. They're going to be demilitarized. That's where he says, you know, France included. And Molotov twice actually asks him, you know, why, why are you putting China? And he says to him, you know, these are the four. And he says, why are you putting China? China is, is weak. And, and FDR kind of concedes. He says, yeah, China will have to have a united government to do this. Uh, he concedes that they're weak, but he doesn't concede the point that they shouldn't, they shouldn't be there. Um, he keeps pushing it. Uh, you know, Molotov doesn't resist too hard because he's not, that's not his priority. His priority is to talk about the second, uh, the second, the second front try to get a commitment from FDR to, 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 to do that, to relieve the pressure on the Eastern Front. But, uh, but it's quite interesting that, that it, it comes up right there, China is there from the very beginning of the concept of the, of the fourth policeman. Now, as I, as I mentioned, the Allies resist this. Uh, Churchill has this famous quote. Uh, where he says, I cannot regard the Chunking government as representing great world power. Certainly there would be a faggot vote on the side of the United States in any attempt to liquidate the British Empire, British overseas empire. So Churchill's actually right about this. The, 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 the Chunking government does not represent a world power at this point in time. And it would be a faggot vote on anything having to do with liquidating the British Empire. Although this quote has been, some, in, in, in some text of it has been taken out of context this term faggot vote, which is, especially for Americans, is kind of very, uh, uh, I don't know, appealing, um, it has, has, been, has been used to suggest that Churchill thought that China would be an American puppet. But that's not what he's, what he's saying here. He's not saying there'll be an American puppet on everything. He's saying there'll be an, an American ally liquidating the British Empire, which is precisely true. And Churchill, I think, realized better than many of us do today that that was one of FDR's goals, liquidate the British Empire. And that China would be an ally, not a puppet, but an ally in this in this um, uh, in this task. So this this story, uh, this quote has been taken out of context, I think, and, and and used to imply that that Churchill thought that China was going to be an American puppet, and and moving it even a bit, a bit further, used to used to used to say that that FDR thought that China was going to be an American puppet. And I think neither of these things are even remotely true. Churchill didn't think it. Certainly FDR. Stalin uh, also consistent. He didn't. He, he was not one for for saucy quotes, but he he, he was just as stubborn as, as Churchill. He certainly was uh, uh, refused consistently to meet with any Chinese representative, not just personally, but, but you know uh, in any in any official form, uh, uh, and, and and continuously resisted this idea. But I'll, I'll get in a minute to how the uh, Americans essentially uh, bent bent. Uh, uh, the Soviets to accept this uh, China's importance. Then, as I said before, uh, Chiang Kai-shek was himself not, he had ambitions, of course, in East Asia, but he, he didn't, he didn't quite, he didn't really understand and was not particularly interested in the sort of, sort of global role that FDR envisioned for China in the post-war world, and I'll, I'll get in a minute to this distinction between the global and the regional aspects of this. Now, I'm sure you know that the, the, the first meeting, the between the, the big three happens in Tehran in November of 1943, Stalin, Churchill, and, uh, and uh, FDR. And in preparation for that meeting, there's a, uh, as you also know, there, there was a, uh, a foreign minister's conference in uh, Moscow in October of 1943. 
to prepare Tehran, prepare the summit. Okay, so Molotov is there, uh, Cordell Hull, who's the, uh, who's the US Secretary of State is there, um, Anthony Eden, who's the British Secretary of State uh, 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 or Foreign Minister is there. Uh, and the Americans wanted the Chinese Foreign Minister invited as well, but of course Stalin refused, and so uh, he was not invited. But the interesting thing about this, and, and this I actually have to read this, uh, Andrew Harriman went with uh, Cordell Hall to this, uh, to this meeting. Uh, he was he's just been appointed uh, American ambassador to the Soviet Union, and so he goes to take up his position, and he serves as an advisor to Hall uh, uh, during these negotiations. And, and this is, this is uh, from Hall's sort of autobiography, it's, it's autobiography, it's written in a, uh, it's written in the, in the third person. Um, so this, he, what he basically says here is that Hall spent most of his time, most of his discussions with Molotov, they, they wanted to have a declaration coming out of the Moscow meeting that will prepare, the declaration of principle that will prepare the Tehran, the Tehran summit. This declaration is known as the Four Nations Declaration. It's basically an expansion of the earlier declaration of the United Nations Declaration of Principle. And the, the Russians and the British want it to be a three-nation declaration. They don't want China to be allowed to sign. And the Americans insist on China being allowed to sign. And first, Molotov tries to hide behind a technicality. He says, well, the Chinese foreign minister is not here, so why can they sign? Of course, he's not here, he's not invited. But Hall says, well, we'll have the Chinese ambassador sign. Molotov keeps up putting in front. Hall, according to Hammond, spends most of this most of the week of negotiations pushing back uh, against this, and in the end he essentially threatens, essentially threatens that if the Russians do not agree to allow the Chinese to sign this Declaration of Principles, Lend-Lease aid would be uh, taken away from Russia, some portion of it would be taken away from Russia and moved to China. At that point, Molotov gets a signal from Stalin that it's okay. So he was expending a lot of capital vis-a-vis -vis the Russians, but he was also Hull and Roosevelt behind him were also going against the advice of their newly appointed ambassador. And this, uh, this is now the quote from Harriman. From Harriman's point of view, Hull's concentration on the declaration and China was a mistake. He used all of his influence, the ambassador recalled, to get China accepted as the fourth great power. I thought he would have been better advised also to apply his considerable leverage with the Russians least leverage, in attempting to work out agreements to safeguard the independence of Poland and other nations in Eastern and Central Europe whose liberation was foreseen in a matter of months. Eden stood alone, however, the British Prime Minister, in raising that issue. Molotov predictably contended that it was too early to talk about Eastern Europe, and Hull, in spite of Harriman's uh, uh, urgings, was not greatly interested. One day in Moscow, when Harriman stressed the cardinal importance of pressing Molotov to talk about Poland, the Secretary of State responded, and this is, when I saw this quote, I was flabbergasted. The, study, the Secretary of State responded, I don't want to deal with these piddling little things. I, we must deal with the main issues. This is quite striking. Getting China to sign the declaration, that's the main issue. That's what he thought he should be spending most of his leverage on. Worrying about Poland, that's a piddling little thing. And I think, in a sense, that is a, to my view, to my mind, a clear representation of the priorities of Roosevelt and Hall, not everyone in the industry, but Roosevelt and Hall, um, than what some of the historiography would lead us to believe. Uh, there's a lot of big debates over whether Yalta, FDR sold Poland down the river or not, whether he had any choice or not. 
I think all of these are crucial debates, but I think the main point is that Poland was just not particularly important. I mean, I'm convinced by the argument he didn't really have much leverage on the question of Poland, but even if he had leverage, like he did in Moscow, he would not have used it because it just wasn't a priority. China was a priority. The FDR ends up, uh, sorry, this is the Chinese ambassador who signed the, 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 board, the formation, the Soviet Union's the formation declaration. And the FDR meets uh, 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 next month, or actually a couple weeks later, meets Stalin in Tehran. He, again, the first thing, just like the Molotov, the first thing he wants to talk about is impossible order. This is actually how he graphs, he draws it out. Some of you may have seen this before. He draws it out for Stalin. This is what the, the, the international organization of the world is going to look like. So I don't, you know, I would have drawn these circles as concentric, but maybe he wasn't just, he was graphically challenged, but that's how he draws it. You have here three circles. This is the what becomes essentially the General Assembly of the United Nations. There's 40 United Nations, it ended up being, being more than that, I think 52 at the beginning of the course by now, maybe more than that. Uh, this is the Executive Committee, uh, which uh, what essentially evolves into uh, what is now known as, uh, as the various specialized agencies and the Social and Economic Council. All those parts of the UN to deal with non-security matters, and he puts, you know, the ILO. Many of these organizations are already there, either in full or in reality form. And then here on the on the right side is the four police. That's the security part, the architecture. That's what's going to take care of preserving the peace. This is kind of the, if you want, the New Deal part of the global order. You know, it's globalizing the New Deal. It's going to take care of social and economic issues. And this is like the parliament, where everyone's going to be represented, um, and hopefully not, not, not muck, muck stuff up too much. I mean, it's kind of like FDR's attitude toward domestic affairs, uh, just translated into um, a global stage. Now, there is actually quite a discussion, an interesting discussion, between FDR and Stalin about this. I mean, again, this is not a priority for Stalin, so he doesn't spend too much time talking about this. He wants to talk about this. Um, but he does challenge China's inclusion in the four police. And he says to him, Stalin says, when FDR says China is one of the four policemen, and, uh, 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 Stalin says, well, the way he puts this is, is this. He says, I don't know if the small European nation, and the FDR basically says, if it's going to be a threat to peace, the four policemen will work together to meet that threat. The FDR, and, and Stalin says, I don't know if, the, if a, a small European nation would want the Chinese to be involved in their business. You know, so he says, let's have two separate councils. One council for Europe, where China's not involved. One council for East Asia, where China is involved. So that they don't muck up you know, European affairs. This is the regional structure idea. And actually, this had a lot of support even within the administration. Sumner Wells, among other people, supported it. Stalin supported it. Churchill supported it. But the globalists, FDR, First among them, but also Cordell Hall, uh, in the end succeed in creating a structure for the United Nations which is not regional, which is global. And FDR says to Stalin right there in Tehran, he says to him, No, this can't be a regional structure. This must be a global structure. And so this to me is another another dot, another piece of evidence that what he's concerned about is not simply the balance of power in East Asia. What he's concerned about when he's thinking about China as a foreign not simply about the balance of power in East Asia, because for that, the regional structure would have been okay. He doesn't 
really want the Chinese to be involved, say, in conflicts in the Balkans. But he needs China there at the global level for symbolic reasons. The global nature of the United Nations, among other things, or the Security Council, becomes Security Council, is crucial for the symbolism, for the representational value of it. It's not simply a question of security in the, in, in the narrow sense of the term. And this insistence on the global writ of the Security Council for police becomes Security Council, continues throughout and essentially, and in the end, triumphs place in the way that the organization So I've talked more than enough already. Conclusions. FDR's insistence on China's inclusion in the population was persistent and central to his plans for the post-war order. It is best explained as emerging from the intersection of his Wilsonian advocacy of military security's opposition to colonialism. Uh, the post-war order uh, would be based on the vision would be based on the break of colonial empires, the gradual integration of non-white peoples as sovereign equals in international society and an international organization of global and not just regional scope with a legitimate power of economic sanction and military action. And for this, for all of this, he needed China. China's membership in the post-war Big Four was crucial to this particular security architecture as a symbol of the integration of non-white peoples in international society and the global legitimacy, the global legitimacy and authority <coughs> And there, there are numerous quotes I can give you that, that show that FDR was insisting that he was thinking about this in, in, in the long term. This was a grand strategic, to, to coin the term, a grand strategic uh, move rather than a tactical move. Uh, one of them is from a letter he wrote to Louis Mountbatten, who was the, the uh, supreme commander of the uh, China Burma India uh, theater for the war, a British admiral. And, and Mountbatten asks him about you know, the inclusion of China. He says, I really feel it as a triumph that have got the 425 million Chinese on the Allied side. This will be very useful 25 or 50 years hence, even though China cannot contribute military or naval support for the moment. This is interesting, among other things, because he was out of date in terms of Chinese poverty. This number, he has a gap that says 400 or 425 million. Actually, the actual number by this time was something like 500. Uh, and and I, I, I was interested in why he, why he keeps quoting the wrong number. And I, so I looked it up, and I, I realized that it was around 400 million, the Chinese population was around 400 million, around the time that FDR graduated from Harvard. And so presumably, I don't know, he picked that number up somewhere. You know, like we all pick up intellectual capital, and then we spend it, like Kissinger said. So he was spending his intellectual capital, and then picked up a couple decades ago by that time. But nevertheless, I mean, for him, it was still a big number. So, so if you use the, big, the, the actual number, I'm really interested in the, in the 25 year figure that, that, he puts, that he puts there because I have a brief quote if you'll bear with me. Uh, I, I want to make the argument, and, and this I think goes, goes a bit against the, perhaps substantially against the current historiography, um, that the Marshall Mission 1946 was essentially a continuation or an attempt by the Truman administration to continue FDR's policy on the China question and, and to, to construct a kind of China that would do what FDR wanted it to do. With or at least a united China. Now, I hadn't realized until I looked into this, maybe, maybe you know this, but I was surprised to learn this. I knew about the Marshall Mission. I hadn't realized that Marshall was in China, George Marshall was in China for more than a year. He arrived there in late 1945. He didn't leave until early 1947. And I was, I was struck by this because in most 
histories that you read of the origins of the Cold War, this is kind of a footnote. You know, Marshall went to China, he tried to negotiate between the Chinese and the, between the nationalists and the communists. It was, you know, doomed from the start. He failed, he left, and that was it. The Cold War break broke out. Uh, and similar world, China broke up. But he was there for 14 months. This is not some piddly little thing, right, to send someone on Marshall's stature. And he comes back from China in February to Washington, February 1947. He immediately gets appointed Secretary of State. His next major act in the summer of 1947 is the Marshall Plan. And to me, it's really interesting, this move from the Marshall Mission to the Marshall Plan. Not just this move from a uh, FDR, Wilsonian mode of trying to reconstruct world order to a Cold War mode. There's a complete shift in the way that the American government is is, is viewing what needs, how it needs to reconstruct the, the world order. But also a shift from focus on East Asia to a focus on Europe. Marshall starts out spending 14 months in East Asia trying to give up on that, moves on to Europe. So this, this move from the Marshall mission to the Marshall plan is actually quite an interesting move for me. And I think cuts against the grain of, of some of our understandings of the origins of the Cold War. I, I was saying this at, at Yale weeks ago, John Gaddis was thinking that. I was like, they're really challenging, you know, the historically and the origins of the Cold War, and John Gaddis is sitting right in front of me. But I said it anyway, and he seemed to think it was an interesting idea. And I, it's something I'm, I'm not exploring, but my next, uh, the next paper I want to I write is on the Marshall Mission. I think it's been overlooked as an important uh, turning point of events. But here's the thing, so Marshall leaves China in early 1947. Now, FDR was talking about 25 years hence. What happens 25 years after Marshall leaves China? Another significant American official arrives. Anybody know? It's too easy, right? We're all well educated. February of, 19, of, of, of 1972, 25 years, almost exactly. Not to the day. It would have been nice to the day. But almost exactly uh, after Marshall leaves, Nixon arrives. And I think it's actually, it actually makes sense, at least to me, it makes sense to see what Nixon was doing in 1972 as, in some sense, returning to the Rooseveltian strategy, returning to the notion that China is central to American global strategy. Not just about East Asia or about the Cold War, but to American global strategy. I'll leave you with that. Uh, thank you.
And this serves why it undercuts your argument. Because it would be hard to argue that Nixon in 72 is looking for. So, problem solved. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, I mean, but it, it, you, you hear my point. I mean, I want to hear you, I want to hear you say a little more, not about why FDR wanted non -white, a, a non white society to play a major role, but, but why that's a better explanation than the balance of power explanation. And actually, if I can, I was uh, going to ask a similar question, but a slight revision, so if I can jump in here, uh, since it's a similar theme. I'm persuaded by the Wilsonian influence very much. But what about the influence of Roosevelt's fifth cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, and his realism there? Not so much a geopolitical realism of China as a nation-state balancing in East Asia, but the fusion of the UN of Wilsonian idealism and then realism of the four policemen. Why not China as an institutional balance to the other three veto-wheeling members of the Security Council so that it doesn't have to be the US playing off the British against the, the Soviets all the time, but that China can help sometimes balance the Soviets institutionally, sometimes balance the, the, the British? It's a, it's a modification of Jeremy's question, but the same, it's the same balancing dynamic. Yeah. Um, all right, where, where to start? Uh, first of all, I think you're, you're right that, that the, um, Regional strategic argument is the one I, I that's the that's the hardest job that I have to to convince uh, my audience readers that that my explanation connects the dots better. Uh, a couple of the dots that I think, and I, I mentioned this in the talk, a couple of the dots that I, I think don't really get connected by the regional explanation is again FDR's insistence on the global structure uh, and his continued rejection. It would have been easy for him to accept the regional structure because both St Stalin wanted it. Churchill wanted it, and some of the most influential people within his administration wanted it. That was one of the main points of contention between Sumner Wills and, and Orville Hall, uh, including some who were convinced internationalists, but thought that it made more sense strategically to have these things happen regionally, to have, you know, sort of, as you say, a combination of idealism and realism. I think FDRs is also, I mean, I, I, I'm not one of those who thinks that Wilsonianism is somehow a counterpoint to realism. I actually think that Wilsonians see themselves uh, and are motivated by what they perceive as, 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 as exigencies. They're, they're not, they don't perceive, certainly FDR does not perceive himself as trying to kind of impose a messianic or utopian view. He, he, he saw himself, I believe, as Mighty Wilson did, but FDR more so, more, more uh, obvious, uh, and as someone who was responding to the world as it was, who was responding to things like the, the, what, what his generation would call the rising tide of color, uh, the inevitability. I haven't talked about whether Wilkie's book on the world, I think that's a really interesting document in that, in that way. Um, so I think, I think the global aspect is is one argument, one dot that I would make that doesn't really get connected. Why does that cut more the other way rather than, the, than in terms of the global balance? I mean, that would... Well, I mean, because as I understand it, the, the, uh, the, the pure strategic argument says China would have been useful um, for counterbalancing the British and the Russians in East Asia. Certainly not in Europe, in East Asia. So that's that's the, the argument that has to do with the strategic balance in East Asia, and the regional idea that again most Stalin and Churchill supported would have resolved that issue, or it seems to. I think it would have resolved that issue in FDR's mind. And so the fact that he rejected it and, and pursued this global structure, and insisted that China at least symbolically should be involved in all uh, uh, all. Um, security <coughs> problems globally, not just East Asia security problems. 
by its vir the virtue of its membership in the four police. Uh, to me, that dot gets connected better with my explanation than with this other one. The other dot is that it's very clear that FDR understood, this was again re realistic, that China was not going to be a major military power any time in the foreseeable future. That it was not going to be on its own uh, going, going to be able to resist Soviet military power and or Japanese military power. And so if you want to make the argument that he thought that China in 1945 was going to be a, a major power that was going to hold off the Japanese, hold off the, the Soviets, it not, was not going to happen and there's no evidence that he thought it was going to happen. Um, and the fact that he was very clear-eyed about the, China, the, weakness of, the current weakness of China and yet so insistent on its inclusion as a great power, essentially its promotion, this, an unearned promotion in, in Churchill's terms to this rank of great powers, um, to me requires an explanation that looks at the symbolic value of this move, not simply the strategic value. Unless he had no alternative. If he needs, if he needs a balancer, then that's all he's got. Well, but if, if the balancer... But who would, who I mean, would balance better? Well, obviously the, balance, the balancer is going to be the United States. Um, as it, as it, you know, it, it was clear the United States was going to be the main occupier of Japan. Uh, and it, it was clear that was, that was going to be a long-term mission. Um, and, and, you know, 25 years hence, China would be useful, in his view, in that, in that mission. This was not going to be an immediate thing. And, uh, and again, you, you know, pushing against all this resistance, pushing against the Russian resistance, pushing against the British resistance, putting all this capital into this notion of having China sign nation declaration, having them included in dump to post, having them included in, in San, San Francisco as a founding member of the you know, security of the Permanent Security Council. Uh, it would have been much easier for him to deprioritize that and say, all right, I'm going to give it to, 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 you know, to trade it for something uh, with Churchill or with Stalin. Yet he didn't. It was, it was clearly a very high priority uh, for him. Uh, and, and, and I don't think that the China's Usefulness as a military power in this case explains enough of that insistence. I'm not saying that the strategic East Asia strategic argument is worthless. I just don't think that on its own it is enough to explain what he's trying to do. Um, about Nixon, you know, I'll, I'll put it back on because I, I didn't say about Nixon, and I, you know, I, I haven't done research much research into Nixon, and so I'm, I'm saying this only as a suggestive, suggestive rather than definitive, but. You say it's hard to, I think you started saying it's hard to imagine Nixon as kind of being this, this you know, Wilsonian idealist who's trying to, uh, but I'm sure you know this, uh, actually, Nixon uh, worshipped Wilson. Uh, he, when, he came to, when Nixon came to the White House, he brought in uh, Wilson's desk uh, to be his own presidential desk. Nixon was the son of a Quaker pacifist mother. Uh, and, uh, and I'm kind of developing a psychological theory here, you know, sitting in his, Nixon was about six, I think, in 1919. Um, and, and it's clear that Nixon's, I mean, he talks about, he has these speeches where he talks about his president, he talks about the, uh, uh, the title of peacemaker as being the greatest title that anyone can have. He actually makes references to Wilson. He, there's, there's, I forget which speech, but his famous speech at the beginning of his presidency where he says, you know, ever since, Will, he basically puts himself in Wilson's shoes in, in the Wilsonian tradition and paints his effort to end the Vietnam War, for example, but also to uh, promote world peace in general as a Wilsonian, as a Wilsonian mission. Now, we, and so he explicitly does that. He explicitly makes that connection. We don't tend to think of Nixon uh, in those terms these days for all sorts of reasons, 
I think it's, it may not be as silly as it seems at first. It, it may not take us all the way, but I think it's certainly worth trying to see if the shoe fits uh, and trying to figure out what Nixon was doing. You, you can be a, 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 a crook and a malevolent guy and also at the same time be an idealist and try to achieve world peace. I don't see this as, I mean, you know, people contain multitudes. I'm posed about one thing, that's uh, the colonialism and colonialism argument. But granted, uh, FDR is definitely for self-determination of the colonial, uh, former colonial uh, countries. But, uh, and he did pressure uh, the British on India, uh, but he didn't do a thing about the French. Why not? Uh, he hated the French. He, he didn't dislike the French. He hated the Gaul. Uh, the Gaul is the Gaul. My cross is the cross of Lorraine. It's the greatest of bear. Uh, he hated uh, uh, the way the French were operating in, in Southeast Asia, and but he did nothing to suppress uh, or to get the Gaul out of Southeast Asia. We had people in Hanoi working with Ho Chi Minh and the end of the war. Uh, Ho Chi Minh would, indications are, would have come to the U.S. side if we had supported him against the French. FDR rejected this. Why? Well, uh, I have a feeling that you and other people in the room may know this particular history better than I do, but I'll tell you what my sense is, and if I'm wrong about this, tell me. Um, I mean, obviously, this, this, this entire area is, is, is occupied by the Japanese throughout, throughout the war. Uh, FDR, I think, is very clear that, this, that he is dead opposed to giving this back to the French when the war is over. Um, uh, he supports the American work with Ho Chi Minh. In fact, Ho Chi Minh declares independence, uh, you know, the famous declaration where he cites from Thomas Jefferson, uh, there, there, there are uh, American Officer standing right next to him on, on the stage. I mean, he's an ally. He's an explicit ally of the Americans at this at this point. And my understanding is that the decision um, to, in the end, to support the French is a decision that's made at, long after FDR is dead. It's a decision that's made by the Truman administration very reluctantly, uh, and basically because of the French blackmail. And the French basically say, look, uh, if we lose our empire, we might go communist. So what do you prefer? Do you prefer to support these, these Vietnamese, or, do, uh, or are you willing to take the risk that there's a price for that? You'll have a, you have common, you have the Russians, and, you know, the, communist Chinese, uh, the, the French Communist Party winning elections in, in France. And and Truman actually thinks long and hard about this. This isn't an obvious, you know, it, it's not a reflexive. Uh, yes, of course we'll support you, but at the end, and, and you know, Fred Logenbaugh has written about this more eloquently than anyone else. At the but you know, by the early 1950s, the Americans are more or less all in. But this isn't FDR's. As I understand it, this is not FDR's doing at all. I mean, if somebody has a different understanding, I'd love to hear. Uh, yeah, back. Um, I, I'm struggling to grapple with the end of this policy because it seems like it ends pretty abruptly, uh, and I think it. I think it's clear that though though Truman was not as informed as perhaps he should have been as vice president of Roosevelt's foreign policy goals. If the inclusion of China in the upper echelon of the world of the world powers was as important to Roosevelt as you're arguing, it would seem to me that this would have been passed on to Truman, who I think 
it's clear from both from Ms. Campbell's work and others, was trying to carry on Roosevelt's foreign policy. Um, and if Roosevelt was willing to do something as dramatic as cancel or diminish land lease to the Soviet Union in the middle of World War II, yeah. you would think that that there would be a willingness to expend similar political capital later. And while I don't discount a 14-month mission by a very senior figure in American policy-making circles, uh, it does seem that the US, if this was that important, could have done so much more. Yeah. Um, First of all, I, I have to say that at this stage, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, the, the priority, the, the question of, of FDR, the importance of FDR is attached to China's role, to me, is, is less of an argument than, than a fact. I mean, I, I, I just see it as, the, I, my argument is, is to explain why. I mean, I, I think that's, that's where the argument part comes in. Um, but I would say this, I mean, this, this gets, this is sort of the next stage of my project. This is where I look at the Marshall mission. So everything I say about this is extremely tentative. Don't, don't hold me to it if it doesn't hold up. But my, and, and this gets into this very complicated and interlinked you know, origins of the Cold War story. How, how we really transition from the Rooseveltian vision into the, the Cold War order, um, which we know now is, is more of an interlude, but a very long and influential interlude. Right? Uh, so even under FDR, so I mean, FDR obviously is, thinks he can work with Stalin, not just during the war, but also after the war. FDR has no problem really with the Chinese communists. Um, and is, even under FDR, there are lots of attempts to, uh, and not, not just attempts, but, but, but missions to, to Negotiation with the communists, attempts to bridge the gap between the nationalists and the communists to bring to bring them in into a, a united front. And actually, Stalin supports this because you know Stalin's policy in terms of China is united front. You know, he says to Mao, "You should, you should, you should, you should be together with these nationalists because that's the principle of united front." And of course, Mao knows understands Chinese realities much better than Stalin does. But actually, Roosevelt and Stalin are on the same page in this. And and Truman continues this. The Marshall Mission is a continuation of. I mean, FDR worries a lot about trying to get a unified and stable government in China during the war. And, and the Marshall Mission is essentially a continuation of that, trying to do that, because he knows that in order for China to do what he wants it to do in this story that I just told you, he needs to have a united government. It may not, have to, may not necessarily have to be a major military or industrial power immediately, but it needs to be a stable power. Okay? Now what happens is, and this is already complicated in FDR's time, uh, but it becomes more complicated in, in the early Truman administration, becomes increasingly difficult to do anything that smells of pro-communist sympathies. Uh, or any other FDR, and then 46, 47, you know, the, the internal arena hardens up, and it becomes less and less possible for an American politician uh, to, to be seen or, be, or be put oneself in a position of being tarred as pro-communist. And so Marshall, I think, comes in taking the Chinese communists very seriously and, and wants to work with them, but midway through his mission, I mean, you know, the, the, one of the problems is the Chinese themselves are not, you know, Chiang Kai-shek is allergic to any kind of compromise, <laughs> and Mao himself is very mistrustful of China. But by the, around midpoint of the mission, it, it becomes more and more difficult for someone like Marshall to really operate with the communists in good faith, politically, in terms of the domestic, the domestic, repercussions of this. Um, 
because of you know the, the, the you know, I think we, we all know this this, this story of, of the origin of the Cold War. And so and so what happens is, is it gets eaten up in the deepening and hardening divide between the Soviet Union and the United States. But at the same time, I I'm actually well not convinced, but I, I think it's worth exploring the notion that for FDR and even for Truman at the beginning, East Asia was more important than Europe in terms of an arena for American interests. And this, this thing that I was hinting at for the Marshall Mission and the Marshall Plan, I think this is kind of a transition, not just transition from a Wilsonian order to or Roosevelt's order to a Cold War order, but also a transition from a focus on East Asia to a focus on Europe. East Asia is essentially, you know, by 47, it's clear that the, the nationalists are losing, they're going to lose the war, even if they haven't lost yet. Now, of course, this is, again, also an interlude because Korea comes along and East Asia again becomes the central arena of the Cold War. But by 47, they basically give up on making China, uh, early 47, on making China what FDR wanted it to be for two reasons. One is because of, they, can't, they can't fix the domestic Chinese situation, and two is the global, the global situation becomes just not conducive to, to, to doing what they were trying to do. But they, they, there's a real effort, I think, to initially to get a Last question. So, uh, independent of the real politics we were talking about, power politics we talked about earlier, and uh, whether FDR thought that China was going to lean communist, communist or nationalist, uh, I thought your point of uh, Wilson, Wilson, Wilsonism and uh, and uh, how uh, FDR thought about including non-whites in the, in the <coughs> creation of the United Nations that would legitimize it. That maybe uh, I don't know if you came across any research uh, during uh, where FDR thought about the failure of the League of Nations and whether he had that in mind when he included China uh, as something that would last. Yeah, I mean, FDR certainly thought about the failure of the League of Nations. I haven't found a, a specific quote where he says the League of Nations failed because there was no room for non-white people in it. Uh, but I think it, it's it's a fairly reasonable assumption to make. He was clearly concerned. I mean. There's a great quote from FDR where he says, he talks about Churchill in China. He says, you know, Winston. He says Winston calls the, you know, he talks about, the, he calls the Chinese, um, he calls them Chinamen and, and pigtails, and, and he's wrong about this. You know, they're they're serious people. They don't like to be, to be called these kinds of names. They have a great deal of potential, and they'll be an important power at one point. Um, and, 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 and you know, I mean, Churchill is another, you know, quote from Churchill's doctor in his memoirs. Churchill was basically Victorian. He was a racist through and through. He thought anybody who was not white was inferior, period. Um, and, 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 you know, I'm not saying FDR was, was a great, you know, great egalitarian, but he was far more progressive than certainly than Churchill um, on, this, on this count. Uh, and uh, he thought that from a realist point of view, uh, non-white peoples had to, had to have room made for them uh, in international affairs, or else, you know, the whole thing was all right, well, please join me in thanking the rest of the